Well, well, we are in the series called Change the World. We started this last week, and uh, it's, I, it's an exciting series. It's a, I like to do these kind of vision-driven series as in September as we kind of launch into the ministry year. Sometimes we need a little bit of a reminder of kind of what we're all about and who we're living for and what our lives are called to make a difference in our world. And I just believe this is just a great opportunity for us to recalibrate, realign, and refocus on the goodness of God in and through. So we started this, this series called Change the World. It's sort of in, in, um, taken in part, John Maxwell, who is a leadership uh, guru, leadership author, wrote a book called Change the World just recently in the, in the last two years. On, but reading through that and taking some of the notes and some of his thoughts, and that's kind of incorporated a little bit into our conversation. But essentially, it's, it's, it's a call to mission, right? It's, it's a call to arms. It's a call to make a difference in the life of others. And we're not talking about changing the world, right? How many people know when we talk about changing the world, it just seems overwhelming, right? It's just, that's just too big of a task. Like, you want me to change the world? Like, it's just too big. It's daunting. But sometimes when we talk about changing your world, that same language also can stir within us a, set, a, set, a sense of unsettledness or a sense of, of uh, kind of just like awkwardness because it, it, it actually requires something of us, doesn't it? It actually demands that we actually do something. And if we want to be actively part of changing our world, we actually have to do something, right? It, it calls us to action. Some of us find that uncomfortable because we, we kind of have found comfort in the way we live our life and operate our day-to-days and we have a good routine and we don't want to mess up the routine. But anytime you inf- introduce the word change, it implies my routine is going to get broke. You know, something is going to shift. And uh, so some of us are kind of uh, apprehensive about that, but I, I want to believe that we want to lean into the idea of changing our world. One of the kind of the big ideas that I've been wrestling with and, and I really feel to the core of my being is that church, that, that Sundays, that church does not exist just to have a place to come on to on Sundays, right? Like we don't just, we don't, we're not here on just to have a place to come on Sundays because you have nowhere else to go, you have nothing better to do. No, but church exists to mobilize us individually to change your world. It's, it's, a, it's a gas station of sorts of, of spiritual refilling and reminding and realigning so that when you go to work and, and you walk your neighborhood or, or you surround yourself with sports and, and a team you're a part of, you realize that you're called on mission. You're mobilized to make a difference, to change your, your world. And last week we kind of introduced this first idea of how to live this salt and light life. If you missed it, you can go online and watch that. But just a quick recap is that we realize in order to live this life, we need to do four things. We need to value people by connecting to people. We need to add value people, add value to people, but through influencing. We need to live good values, and that becomes attractional. And then we share the good values, which becomes transformation. And that's really the transforming power of God at work in our life. We realize this thought through the story of Matthew 25, that Jesus values people so much that when you and I add value to people, what has happened? Jesus actually takes it personally, right? When we add value to people, Jesus actually takes it personally. We see this in the story, and when Jesus is speaking to his disciples in Matthew 25, he says, whenever you did one of these things, whenever you fed or clothed or visited or, 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 or showed focus to, to someone who's overlooked or ignored, whenever you valued people, what does Jesus say? He says, that was me. You, you did it to me. And so we understand that by adding value to people, Jesus actually takes it personally. And so this is the daily journey. I don't know about you, uh, but I wish I could perfect this. I wish this is something that I could master. But I'm going to be honest with you, this is a practice that I have to practice every day, right? Every day I have to recognize that I'm on a journey, that I have to embrace the grace of a new day, realize that his mercy is new every morning, because sometimes I miss the mark. 
right? Actually, more times than I probably even care to admit. And so I recognize, okay, today is a new day. I'm going to journey with Jesus, and that's what we're all about. We are leading people into an overflowing relation with Jesus. This is a journey we have together. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today, and it just kind of remind, I want to take a moment to remind you of what we're all about and what your, where your place is in this journey together. As always, you can follow along on our YouVersion at events. Uh, all of our notes are there, scriptures, you can make your own notes and save them for later. Uh, but we're going to go through this together. At the end of the day, we believe as a church that God has called us on a spiritual journey, and how we describe that here, maybe this is new for you, is we experience it this way, to experience life, we describe it to live in community, to discover purpose, and make a difference. This is the journey that we believe God has called us on as a church. We experience life. This is the very first step. We believe that God wants us to experience life, hope, excitement, but also Jesus. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, right, the Father God. And so we want people to experience Jesus. That's why the first thing you see when you come into our, into our facility is Jesus changes everything. We want you to experience Jesus, that every one of us have been invited to know God through Jesus, right, as we relationship with Jesus. And my prayer is that we, none of us in this place would settle for knowledge about God, but we would actually know God personally through a relationship with Jesus. And that's an opportunity, an invitation for everyone. You don't have to be a pastor or a minister. You don't have to be a parent or a grandparent. Anyone at any age who pursues Jesus can know the Father through Christ. And so we want people to experience life. Secondly, we want people to live in community. We want people to help you. This is how we help you live the better version of yourself, right? Salvation, believe, we believe salvation comes through Jesus, right? We need to confess our faith in Jesus to receive. But Jesus' plan to bring healing and transformation and wholeness is through people. He uses his body. He uses the church. He uses you and I. We see James, the brother of John, says this. He says, therefore, confess your sins one to another. Why? That you may be healed. Like there's, a, there's something that happens when we bring people into our life and we're encouraged by one another and, and inspired by one another and pray together to sense a sense of healing. And so we want you to, don't do life alone. Don't live your faith alone. alone. Live in community. Thirdly, we want you to discover purpose, help you discover your, your unique design. And fourthly, to make a difference and to find a place on a team. Find a place where you can actually join with others to make a difference in the lives of others. And here's the truth that I want you to understand. We believe the ultimate purpose of your life, the ultimate purpose of your life is not to get rich or famous. The ultimate purpose of your life is not to live a safe life. It's not to be mortgage-free. It's not to have all the tools and all the toys. It's not to have all the, the extras in life. It's not to get to that good promotion. It's, that's not the ultimate purpose of your life. God can use those things, and those are not bad things in and of themselves. But our ultimate purpose in life is to make a difference in the lives of others. Your life's ultimate purpose is to impact another's life. That, that's the whole reason. It's to go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them, and teaching them everything that Jesus has taught us, right? That, there should be a, an overflow effect. God doesn't ask us all to do the same thing in the same way. You don't all have to be pastors or preachers or worship leaders or small group leaders. You don't all have to do the same thing. But it's identifying how God has uniquely designed you and where he's uniquely placed you for a specific and special purpose. I believe this with all my heart, that every, every one of us were made on purpose, with purpose, for a purpose. And our joy, our joy as a church is to walk alongside of each and every one of you as we discover together what that is and help you live that out. 
I love Paul in his, in his letter in 2 Corinthians 9. He says, listen, when you live your life of service to others, when you understand this with a joyful and cheerful heart, he says, you will be made rich in every way. And he's not talking about financial riches here. He's just talking about you will be blessed. You'll, you'll have favor in your life. You'll be filled to overflowing in every way. So why? So that your life may be generous on every occasion. Listen, when you understand the purpose of God in your life, God wants to bless you with, with richness and fullness and blessing and joy to overflowing in every possible way, in every area and facet of your life, not for your own sake, not for your own benefit, not for your own luxury and for your own comfort, but so that you may overflow with generosity. With great generosity, it's giving more than you have to give, doing more than you have to do on every occasion. And uh, I, my prayer here today, here's, here's my prayer, it's real simple. My prayer today is that I will help us recognize our influence, recognize the opportunities that God has for us. I believe we have to recognize our influence before we can exercise our influence. Where has God placed us? What has God asked of us to do? Who has God designed us to become? And when we understand that, then we can begin to live that out. Again, Paul in Galatians, he wrote in Galatians 6, he says, make a careful exploration of who you are. Come on. Understand who you are and, and the works that you have been given, and then sink yourself into it. Listen, you need to discover who God has made you to be. You need to discover who God has created you, fastened you, and, and uniquely designed you to be, and then embrace it. Live all out. Go all out in that. He carries on. He says, Don't be impressed. Don't impress yourself. Don't look at, oh, look at I have, or look at all the things I have. Look at I can do. Don't compare yourself with others. Rather, he says, each of us may take, must take a responsibility. We must take the responsibility of doing the best that we can with our own life. And I just believe that's to be true. Every one of us have to be aware of who God has made us to be. we got to be aware of what he has given us, the, the affluence and the influence and the resources and the, 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 the experiences that we have gained through this life, not for ourselves, but for the benefit of others. And so today we are going to talk about this. We have this responsibility to carefully examine the opportunities that God has placed in front of us. Not just others, we're not, we're not judging others, we're not looking to others, but us, ourselves, and do our best by giving God our best. And I believe that excellence, what does it do? Excellence honors God and it inspires other, right? others. When we live our best, when we do our best, it honors God, but it inspires others. Nobody is inspired by mediocre, right? Anybody inspired by mediocre? Eh! that was okay, I want to do it. You know, nobody, right? We're inspired by the best. We're inspired by excellence that inspires us and wants us to, to sell out, to, to work harder, to be part of that. None of us are inspired by mediocre. Anyway, I want to read a story to you as we discuss this a little bit. Uh, there's a beautiful story in Acts 16. It's not going to be on the screen. The last part will be that we're going to focus on, but the story I'm going to read for you, if you want to follow along, it's in Acts 16, starting in verse 16. And it's a story... Uh, it's a story of Paul and Silas. Now, Paul and Silas, many people know who Paul was. Paul was a, a missionary. He was a, a, really the first missionary. He wrote most of the New Testament letters that we read here today, an apostle of God. Uh, and he went out, and he went to the places outside the Jewish community, and he went to all the, 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 the Gentile world, the known world, to preach the gospel. And he was met with a lot of resistance along the way. Saul, Silas was one of his disciples, one of those who went with him and traveled with him. And so here they are, they're in, they're in Rome at this time, and they're, they're preaching the gospel, they're doing their thing, and we pick up on this story of Paul and Silas. So once they were, once when we were going, this is Paul speaking, once we were going to the place of prayer, and we were met 
by a slave girl who had a spirit in which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. So here we have a, a girl who's obviously not, she's kind of a slave. She's, been, she's, been a, she's in a position of abuse. She's being abused, but she's got this ability to tell the future. Um, and, and the owners are, are basically utilizing her for this, for their benefit. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. It's funny is that the spirit who is anti-God is declaring exactly what is going on and who these guys are and the good news that they have. And listen, they're telling you the truth. These, if they're telling you how to be saved. Anyways, it gets annoying. She kept on this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and he said to her, the spirit, not to her, but the spirit in her, in the name of Jesus, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. This is a beautiful thing. This girl who was oppressed by a demon, who, who has lost control of her life, and who, whose life was ruined by this spirit in her, has now been set free. This is called for rejoicing. This is called for good news. But her owners, her masters, didn't see it that way. When the owners came of, of, of the slave girls realized that their hope in making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the market to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept and practice. Remember, they're preaching a different way. This is a different way. This is anti-cultural. This is opposite to a cross-cultural way of thinking. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. So the first. And then after they were severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them into the inner cell and fastened their feet in, their, in, 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 feet in the stocks. So this is not a good day for Paul and Silas, right? They're doing the right thing. They're doing something that they thought was beautiful and beneficial and Jesus-centered. They're, they're living a mission-driven life. But people are responding differently to their good news. At midnight, Paul and Silas were doing things that we would all do. They were complaining and grumbling. No, that's not what it says. That's what we would do. <laughs> Woe is me. Where are you, God? Why aren't you coming to my rescue? Why would you allow this to happen? I'm trying to preach your good news. I'm trying to do what you call me to do. Why am I re uh, coming up such resistance? Why have I been flogged? I'm bloody, I'm beaten, I'm broken, I'm in pain. I'm sitting on the cold floor in the inner cell, no light, no sun, no food, beaten and broken. And a lot of us, when, when, we get, when life throws us these kind of curveballs and situations, that's how we respond, right? That's how we react in those moments. But not Paul and not Silas. That's why we can look to him as an example to follow. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were what? Praying and singing hymns to God. And this is the beautiful part. And the other prisoners were listening to them. So not only were they singing and praying by themselves, but they were actually being taken notice. Other prisoners in the cell were listening and following along and seeing what was taking place, hearing what was taking place. Suddenly there was a, a violent earthquake and the foundations of the prison were shaking. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Circle everybody's if you've got your Bible. Everybody's. Not just Paul and Silas's, not just those followers of Jesus, but everybody's chain. Can you imagine the jailer at this point? You're trying to hold this thing tight. You're trying to keep this thing under control. You'd be given a mandate not to let them go. But all of a sudden, there's an earthquake. Not, every, not only do the doors fling wide open, 
but everyone's chains come off. Everyone's chains come off. We don't know the makeup of the people in this room, in the jail, if they were murderers and thieves and rapists. and a, We don't know the kind of dynamic, but we just know they're in prison for some reason. And here they are along with Paul, Paul and Silas. And so the prisoner wakes up, obviously in a fright. And when he saw that the prison doors were open, he drew the sword and was about to kill himself. He says, I'm going to die anyways. This is not going to go well for me. I might as well just end myself now and do it quickly and as painless as possible. And before he was about to do that, so the jailer woke up and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. And he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. I love this line. We are all still here. Like, just think about that for a second. We are all, not, not just Paul and Silas, not just the, the God-fearing men of God. No, we're all still here. Every, every enemy, every, every victim, every, every prisoner is still here. We are all still here. And the jailer called for lights. And here's where you see in the scripture. The jailer called out for lights. And he rushed and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He was influenced by their different approach, right? Something that he saw made them curious, and he wanted to lean in. He, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. And here's the blind I wanted to focus on. You and your household. You and your household. Can you just, there's just, I mean, the Bible, I hope you read the Bible. I hope you enjoy reading the Bible. It's so full of so many great stories and moments, and there's so much in this passage that we could explore today. There's so many hidden truths and moments that are just so fascinating. We don't have time to get into that, but one thing I want to focus on is this last phrase that Paul says to the jailer. And he uses this, you know, what can I do to be saved? Well, we know that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Paul is saying that in this context, right? Context. He said, believe in the Lord. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Not Your life will be transformed. You will experience the same joy, hope, and peace that we're talking about and singing about that you heard us sing about even here tonight. But more than that, you and your household. You and your household. And he's talking, it's not just this household isn't just the same word that's used for your house or, or those in your family, but he's speaking to more of your influence. Those around you, those who know you are going to be resaved. Now, we know that each one of us have to come into a personal confession with Christ, right? We're not saved because of our grandparents' faith, but we're definitely influenced by our grandparents' faith, aren't we? And this is what's saying here. He said, listen, we could rewrite this, this passage and say, listen, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved, and you will have a profound impact on your sphere of influence. Listen, if you, once you accept Christ into your heart, you will be saved and that salvation, that change that happens in you will have a profound impact on those you know and those who know you because you will not be the same. Your life, you were an old creation, but now you are made new in Christ. You see, when you and I become Christians, that isn't just for us. When we say yes to Jesus, it's not just for us. Yes, we are the initial benefactor, benefactor of that faith. We are, our hearts are being renewed and change. But when you believe in your heart Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you are saved. But that's not only for you, but for those in your sphere of influence, here's the thing, should be impacted by it. Your life should have an impact on those around you. Your life should be noticeably different. We said this last week, but your life should show the God colors, right? And the God flavors of this world that bring focus back to God, that's what we talked about with salt and light last week, is your life should look noticeably different. 
But here is the increasing habit. Here is the notion that a lot of us have bought into is this idea that, you know, that's the church's responsibility. That's the pastor's responsibility to, to make their life look different, to be a city on a hill. That's the, the church's, that's the building's responsibility. But here's the thing I want you to understand here today is that God has a plan for all of us. That means you, if you're a follower of Jesus, to be saved and then use our sphere of influence, our household, to make a difference in the lives of others. And wouldn't it be amazing if after you found Jesus and you live your life, everyone around you throughout your life would also know and find Jesus? Wouldn't that be a goal? Because everywhere you walk, people see Jesus, they're drawn to Jesus, there's something about your life that makes them curious about Jesus, and they want to come and see who this Jesus is. One of the things I want to just stop and point out in this story is that for many of us, we think our biggest influence is followed by seasons of success, right? You know, it's a big, it's a big thing right now on social media is to be influencers. I want to be an influencer. I get paid to influence people, to market, to, to sell product. I want to influence people on what to think and to believe and who to vote for and, and, and where to spend their money. And it's a big social media thing. But I tell you what, I'm here to tell you that the, the best Christian influence is best practice, not in seasons of success, but it's actually in the valley of the shadow of death. It's sitting in the inner core, in the inner cell work, and how you respond in those moments. You see, Paul and Silas were, were influenced, uh, influence was followed by, by how they acted and how they reacted in times of injustice and in times of hardship. It's how they responded when life wasn't going well. It's how they responded when they weren't treated fairly. It's how they responded when they were beaten to almost with a, an inch of their life by being flogged. It's how they responded when everything around them wasn't fair and wasn't treated equal. How they responded is what made the difference. How they responded is the influence that they had. How they responded made the, had other people know this. How they reacted influenced others. How they stayed faithful in the seasons that most others would have lost hope is what gave them the credibility to speak hope and to lead those around them to Jesus. I want to argue today that your greatest influence as a Christian, your greatest influence as a follower of Jesus around your friends and your family is not when things are going well. It's not when I got a good job, my kids love Jesus, everyone's getting along. Those are beautiful moments and we thank God for them, but that's not where your biggest influence shines. Your biggest influence as a follower of Jesus is when life isn't going well and you aren't vibing and there's challenges at work and you're being mistreated and you're being, fairly un, uh, you're being, uh, you're being treated unjustly and you're being accused wrongly and, and, and tragedy strikes and you're dealing with an, a, a health issue that you didn't ask for and you don't really want. But how you respond in those moments is what people see. And that is the influence that people respond to. How you respond, if we see that Jesus has changed my life, if my life, if I'm a, my, my old self has died, but my new self is alive, and Christ will tell me what this new self is. Because if your new self looks like my old self, then what am I selling out for? And so Paul and Silas, in this moment, they realized that their lives had a profound impact on their sphere of influence in this moment and the jailers around them, and the prisoners around them, and how they responded through hardship. And I know that's a tough lesson because none of us want that for our lives. None of us seek that out for our lives, right? But that is where we see it take place. 
So really quickly this morning, I want to help you define your sphere of influence. I'll help you define where God has placed you and what he has given you so that you can continue to live an influential life. And you can recognize, hey, this isn't just for me. Jesus isn't just for me, but it's for those around me. So here's how you define your sense of influence really quickly this morning. One is you understand your people. Who are the people God has placed in your life? Who are those closest, those closest in you, to you in proximity, your friends and your families, your coworkers, classmates, and neighbors? I love when Jesus had, had healed the demon-possessed man in Mark 15. He says, go home to your family and your friends and tell, them the, tell the Lord what the Lord has done for you and how he has been merciful to you. Listen, go to your friends. Go to your family. Go to those who you know and those who know you and let them know about the difference that I have made in your life. Be a witness and tell them all the things that God has done for you. This is where your sphere of influence begins. This is where it starts. You don't have to go across the world to make a difference. You can start in your own home where God has placed you here in Concordia. Sociologists say that this sphere of influence is usually about 12 people. And I want to help you discover those people today. This is a little exercise you can do maybe a little bit later today. Is that how you develop these 12 people is that you add all the face-to-face time you have with people throughout your week. So take one person, how many hours of face-to-face time do I have with that individual throughout a week? And if it is more than an hour of, a, of accumulated time, then that person is in your sphere of influence. And society, so, sociologists say that rarely will any one of us have more than 12 that fit into that category. And so you start there. Everyone that's got 12, that's pretty manageable. Jesus had 12 disciples, it seems like a good number. You know? So let's start identifying our sphere of influence and start from there. Let's discover them. Let's write them down. Let's identify them by name. Pray for them intentionally. Look for ways to add value to them, like we talked about last week. Pray for opportunities to share your faith, your story with them. Invite them. This is the first step to understanding your, your sphere of influence, is recognizing who is in my sphere of influence. Identify them. Write them down. Begin to pray for them. Start with the people that God has placed in front of you. Listen, you don't have to get on a plane to go across the world to make a difference. You can do that right here where God has planted you. The second thing you want to do is you identify your space, my place. I want to know my people. I want to know my place. And this isn't like, hey, hey, son, know your place, right? This is not that kind of know your place. This is, hey, know the power of your place. Know the power of where God has placed you in society. Know where God has put you. And believe that God has not put you there by accident. That You are divinely point, appointed to those people and to that place in this time and this season for a reason and how to live that out. There's a story I heard in 1975. These two men, two great men, two men of God, got together. They found that they were already in the same city one time. One, his name was Lorne Cunningham. And maybe these aren't names that you would know, but Lorne Cunningham was the founder of Youth with a Mission. And Youth with a, with a Mission was an organization that sent uh, hundreds of thousands of youth and, and adults on mission, as missionaries all around the world, starting in the 70s and 60s. And this, comp- this organization rallied and mobilized missionaries that sent all the world. The other one was Bill Bright. Bill Bright was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ. And, uh, can- and he, would, he might go down in history, human history, as the person who led the most people to Jesus, including Billy Graham, like the most people because of his mission. He, he's the one who, who founded and released the Jesus movie, the Jesus film, which more than a billion with a B People watched, and countless millions of people gave their hearts to Jesus through this film. So these are two men of God who have given their life to God. They found out that they're both going to be in Colorado the same weekend. They're both on holidays with their families, and they found they're going to be the other. So they made arrangements to meet the next day for breakfast. 
And that night, unbeknownst to one another, they both receive a vision. They both receive this dream from God outlining seven areas of, of society, seven spheres of influence that the church needs to embrace and lean into in order to kind of let the gospel spread, and the message of Jesus spread throughout the world. And they come together and they're in a conversation and, and when they actually begin to meet, they realize that they both had the same dream. And so when, that, when two people have the same dream, it kind of causes you to take notice, doesn't it? Kind of, hey, well, okay, maybe God's trying to tell us something. Maybe God's speaking to us. And so they begin to di- uh, understand this and, and unpack this and what this actually means for us as a church. See, one of the problems that we as modern day thinking, and it still exists today, is, is that we believe and we think that the church is the only place of influence. The church, that God can only use the church, the gathering, the people, the place of the church to actually make a difference in our community. And they are saying, listen, that's not what it's all about. There's actually way more than that. You see, the church is, is one sphere of influence, right? We talk about the church. John Maxwell, even in his book, Change the World, talks about these seven spheres of influence. It's been, you see it in multiple different books that people have adopted these seven spheres of influence that, have, that were, these two men discussed that one morning in the 70s. But it starts there. But how many people know, like, the church, like Sunday mornings alone, is not going to change the world. Like right now, if you go on StatsCan, I think StatsCan in Canada would say that 30% of Canadians would attest to attending some sort of religious facility or religious church. Obviously, that's a wide spectrum of, of church faith, faith communities. But 30% would say they do. Another 20% would say casually at best, so maybe Christmas or Easter they would attend church. So, I mean, we're doing our job, we're doing our part as a church to influence our community, but we can't. We can't do that. Do you know that this hour that we gather on a Sunday is one hour, but there's 167 hours that you're not here, right? There's 167 hours that you're just in life, you're in community, you're in your work, you're in school, you're in your, you're, you're in your neighborhood. There's, there's other areas that you can be exercising your influence. And so, so he talks about another one is government. You know, I'm going to list them for you. You can discover them. Government and talk about sports and entertainment. He talked about education and business, media and family, all these different areas that we are called to lean in and to embrace our spheres of influence. For family, we know that God established the church, but he created the home. And I believe in our families. I believe that if the enemy can dismantle the family, if he can disintegrate the family, then so society follows, right? As the family falls apart, so society. And so I believe that's why the enemy is attacking families like crazy. And our, 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 our value as followers of Jesus is to continue to feed in and value family. I love this story in Acts where um, Ananias is, is, a, is a man of God, and Paul, who we've just read a lot of his letters, we talked about a lot before, but before he was Paul, he was named Saul, and Saul was not a nice man. Saul was someone who would, he would literally hunt down Christians to imprison or even murder them. He was not a good man. He was a religious zealot. He, was, he believed in a, in a different approach to who God was. He had a wrong view of God. And so, but Saul had this conversion on the road to go in, in Damascus to hunt down Christians, and he has this moment where God, he encounters Jesus, and, and he changes his life. And so God is setting him up, but God also has this vision with a guy named Ananias, and, and he's telling him, Ananias, like, I need you to go and, and help, help Paul. He, he needs someone to walk with him and to counsel him and to mentor him and, and to teach him my ways and, and to set him up because I've given him a value. And I love how he says, he says, he is, he is a chosen instrument, this, Paul, this is God saying to Ananias, of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, the kings, and the children of Israel. And just like God had appointed Paul on purpose and positioned him in different circles of influence of kings and Gentiles, I believe God is calling you and I 
And he positions you and I on purpose for a purpose. And we have to wake up every morning and recognize what is the value or what is the purpose of my role? What is God positioning me and commissioning me to go? Whether I'm going to work and it feels like I'm just doing the same job and I'm seeing the same people and it feels so mundane, it just feels so boring, I don't feel any life out of it, then maybe you need to see the life in it that God has given you the opportunity to be salt and light and to allow your influence to lead people to Jesus. Maybe you're a mother, you're like, well, I'm just a stay-at-home mom, I just love it on my kids. That is the best job you could ever do. Love on your children, train them up and introduce them to the love of Jesus because you never know, you never know what's on the other side of your faith and obedience and just loving your children and teaching your children about Jesus. They're your first mission field. Listen, whatever you do, wherever you are, maybe you're going to high school and you're sitting in a classroom and you, you're just counting down the time where you can get out of there. You don't want to be here anymore. But maybe God has positioned you in that class, in that teach, with that teacher for a reason so you can be salt and light. You can be hope and lead them to Jesus. See, I believe we need godly men and women, old and young, in positions of influence to bring your voice of reason and, mor- and morality and to influence every, and strengthen every part of our society. It doesn't just happen in the church, and every one of us are in at least, at least one, if not more, of those spheres of influence in our community. So here's a step, is that we need to ask God, hey, God, reveal to me the power of my place. God, reveal to me how you position me and how you commission me to be salt and light where I am. And the thirdly, real quick, is my passion. Listen, what, what passions has God given you? I believe God will stir something up within you that he won't stir up in someone else. Right? God is putting a, a desire, a passion, a feeling, a notion, a call, a dream inside of your heart that he's not putting inside of somebody else's heart, which means it's your responsibility to do something with it. You may see something that I don't see. You may feel something that I don't feel. You may be drawn to someone that, I don't, that I'm not drawn to, but God is using your passion to make a difference. Your unique design, your unique experience and expertise has wired you to see people and places a different way. What does that mean? It means that if you have the gift of helps, this is something we talk about in a growth track, by the way, talking about your spiritual giftings, just a little shameless plug. But when we talk about growth track, we talk about spiritual giftings, and maybe you're here, you're like, I have the gift of helps. I just love helping. I love just being uh, assisting. And so when you may come into this room and you may see, well, I see a piece of paper on the floor that needs to be picked up and put away, or oh, that chair isn't straight, or, or, or that person, that team needs some help. I just want to help along the way. And you come into a room and you see a way that you can help. Another person, maybe you have the gift of mercy. And so when you come into the same room, you see someone who is sitting alone, and your heart beats for that person. You're both coming to the same room in the same space, but you see the place and the people differently, and that's how God has wired you. And that's a beautiful thing. That is not something to be tolerated. That's not something to put everyone back into a certain box, but to celebrate who God has made you to be one of the easiest things we can do is to, to fuss about someone who isn't seeing what I see. You know, they don't see what I see. They don't see the disorder, the, the mess, but because they're focused on what they're passionate about. And when we can all work with our passions and serve together, that's when the body of Christ comes together. God needs the whole body, we, the whole church. We need the body working together. The eyes don't need to learn how to breathe. Thank you, Lord. You know, my hands don't need to learn how to walk. My feet don't need to smell, though sometimes they do. It's just what it is, you know. My nose doesn't need to run, but sometimes, no, I'm just joking, sorry. You're with me. I just want to make sure you're with me. But we're all part of the same body, right? We're all different parts. I love how Paul writes it in Ephesians. Ephesians 4.1, it says, Therefore, I, as 
a prisoner serving the Lord. I love how he always identifies himself as a prisoner. I, I'm, just, I'm just serving the Lord from where I am, at the lowest of low. In every opportunity he has given me, I'm, the, I'm serving, serving the Lord. I beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling. The one you have received. Not my calling. Not your neighbor's calling or your parents' calling, your grandparents' calling, your calling. Who has God made you to be? So he says, each one of you has been given a special gift. Or you've been called by God, rather. You've been called by God. This isn't my calling on you. And you've been, all, of, all of you have been given a, a special gift through the generosity of Christ. Listen, we all have a special gift. We all have something unique towards us, something to offer that's, that's only designed for you and your experience and your passions. And why is this a generous the generosity of Christ? It's because God could have asked us to do something that we didn't want to do. God could have asked us something that we're not passionate about. He could have asked you to do something that you really had no joy in doing, but rather God, the other way, gives you a sense of joy and passion and then, and then simply asks you to serve people through that. He gives you joy. He gives you passion. He gives you a sense of fulfillment. And out of his generosity, now he says, now do something for the lives of others through that. Do something different with it. Now all these gifts from Christ gave to the church some apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers, and their responsibility is what? To do everything? To do it all? To, to learn how to be every part of the body? No, 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 no. It's to equip the people, equip God's people to do his work, the work that they have been assigned to do in order to build up the church, the body of Christ. For he makes what? The whole body fit together perfectly. And this is the beautiful union of God. As each part does its own special work, it helps other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. See this, God is asking us to live a life that is set apart. God is asking us to live a life that is different. He's asking you and I to profess, if we profess that Jesus has changed us and, and made us new, that our hearts would actually be so transformed that our lives would be different. How we interact and react would be different. And that influence, that action and those reactions would have an influence that would lead people back to Jesus. That would, like the jailer, would say, how, how do I know Christ? How do I be saved? Sir, how do I become like you? Ma'am, how, how do I find the hope that you have? How do I find the joy that you have? In the seasons of hardship, how do you respond? We talk about fasting and prayer. It's a, it's a, it's a discipline that we talk about a lot in the church, and we're getting better at doing that. We're going to do it again in January, fasting and prayer. But what does fasting do? Fasting disconnects us from the world, and prayer reconnects us to God. This is simply the act of discipline, of, re of disconnecting from the world around us and reconnecting to God. And in doing so, this act of fasting should actually change how we live. It should have an impact on our life. And so church, so too, a church, our time together should be a way of realigning the professions and the actions under God as we embrace our influence to make a difference in our lives. When we come to church, it should be an act of, of disconnecting from the world in order to embrace God and reconnect with God so that our lives could actually look different. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I get to church on Sunday and I realize that my tank is empty. I realize that there was a hole in my bucket and what I was inspired and motivated to do last Sunday has kind of drifted away. And I need to be realigned and rekindled again. And I believe church can be a great place for that. 
But there's this story, there's this chapter in Isaiah, and he's speaking specifically to fasting. But I believe we can speak to that as far as us as a church and our purpose and how we gather and why we come together. And, and, and it speaks to the, 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 the notion of just sort of flippantly going through the motions. But what is God asking us to do? And what is he actually leaning into us? So we see this in Isaiah 58. He says, is this the kind of fast that I've chosen? Is this what gathering together is all about? Only for a day for the people to come together and humble themselves? Is it by bowing? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in a sackcloth of ashes? Is, is that what you call a fast? Is that what you call coming to church? Is that what you call a day of the Lord? And is, is this acceptable to him, just coming to church on a Sunday and then going home and living about your life like nothing's ever changed? Like, is, that, is that all just going through the motions, these, these religious rituals and rites? There's got to be something more than that. It's got to be more than that. He says, is this not the kind of fasting that I've chosen? Is this not the kind of life of Jesus that I've called you to be part of? To loosen the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the prisoner free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wandering with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn them away from your own flesh, of your own blood? Listen, I, when you're set apart, your life shouldn't look like it used to. You're not just going through the motions. But he's saying, listen, when you fast, when you set yourself apart, there's going to be a practice, there's going to be a blessing, there's going to be a benefit to this life. And he keeps on, goes on, and he, and he, and he outlines 12 blessings. I counted them. There's 12 blessings. If we can choose to lean in and embrace our influence, we can receive 12 blessings. And it's outlined here in Scripture. It says, one, then your light will break forth like the dawn. One then your healing will quickly appear. Two, then your righteousness will go before you. Three, then the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Four, then you will call to the Lord and he will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. Five, when you do away with the yoke of oppression, when the pointing of the finger and the malicious talk, when you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the shine and, and sh rise in the darkness and the night will become like, no, like the noonday sun. Six, then the Lord will guard your guard you always. Seven, he will satisfy your needs and your sun-scorched land. Eight, he will strengthen your frame. Nine, you will be like water, well-watered garden, like a spring whose water never fails. Ten, your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and rise up in old and up old foundations. Eleven, and you will repair, you will be called repairer of the broken walls, restorer of the streets, and dwell in, in the dwellings. Twelve, I believe that when we live this life of influence, when we embrace that God has changed us to be a blessing to others, that we have been blessed and changed and renewed and restored and given a hope and a future that's not just for us. It has to come out. It has to come out. And if it's not coming out, then what has he changed? How are you being made new? If you respond like the world responds in hardship, then what difference is he making in you? You're just going through the rituals and the rites and the guilt for no change and no added benefit. But like Isaiah promised, if we can lean into this, if we can lean into this and embrace our influence, and I'm not saying go to Africa and change the world. I'm not saying go across the world. I'm saying start in your home, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, where the people that God has placed in your influence, start there. And if you can embrace your influence and lean into that, start with one person at a time. And I believe we'll see the blessings of God flow out of us. And we'll see the harbor as a place of refuge, as a light, as a beacon house in our community. And I don't know about you, but that's my dream. That's my prayer. That's why I'm here. Is that why you're here? 
Come on, we're not, we have, there's too many things to do just to add another thing to do on our list, right? We're, we're not from this world. We, we're, we're, we're sojourners. We're just passing through. In the process of passing through, we have a responsibility to be salt, to light, to let the good news and embrace the influence that God has given you. I want to stand to your feet here today. So the jailer, he said, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, if you believe in your heart, if you believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved and you'll have a profound impact on your sphere of influence. So today I'm going to ask you to do three things. One, identify your people. Today I want you to tally up the people in your sphere of influence. Begin to pray for them. Secondly, I want you to identify your place. I want you to see the place that God has placed you as your mission field. Where he's placed you, your home, your neighborhood, your workplace, your family. And thirdly, I want you to identify your passion. Identify the unique ways that God has wired you and made you different in this in, and to make a difference in the lives of others. And once you've identified, then lean into it, sell out to it, and let Jesus use your life for him. Let me pray for you today. Father, we just thank you so much that you are in this place. Lord, that you're speaking to us through your word. And Lord, we understand that sometimes when you speak, change, we get uncomfortable. When you speak transformation, we get a little bit on edge because we requires, it, it requires something of us. But God, we are so thankful today that you have done the hard work. Lord, you died on the cross. You defeated sin and death and the grave. And you rose to life to give us life and hope and a future. And so today, we don't have to do the hard work. We just have to embrace you. We just have to get on your team and allow your work to do your work inside of us. And so God, we commit our hearts to you today. We commit our lives to you today. God, we pray that you would help us today embrace our influence, to recognize the responsibility we have to be salt and to be light, to change the world that you've placed us in for your kingdom and for your glory. And so across this room, we're gonna sing this song, just available. And here's my, my prayer for you, is that you would just have this moment that Holy Spirit would speak to your hearts now and you would, you would respond in kind. Maybe God is speaking to you. Maybe God is calling you out. Maybe you've been comfortable too, you've been a little bit too comfortable this last season of your life and God is telling you, to, hey, it's time to step up. It's time to make a difference. It's time to activate that faith. It's time to put your, your feet into motion, your faith into motion. And I want, as, as we sing this song available, it says, here I am, here I am, Lord. Take me, use me for your kingdom and your glory. I just want you to make that your prayer today. Again, this is between you and God. I'm not asking you to sign anything or commit to anything. I just want you to have a moment between you and God to say, God, here I am. Use me. Help me understand and in, uh, understand my influence and embrace the influence that you have given me. Let's sing this song together. Come on. Let's sing, here I am. Here I am. Let's sing it together. Here we know. 